Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this edition of News in Focus is your host, Chris Long. And welcome to this edition of News in Focus. We're glad that you've joined us. Uh, First of all, we want to tell you about the Ohio Christian Alliance Freedom Banquet that's coming up February 22nd at the Akron Fairlawn Hilton. Uh, That's going to be the 7 p.m. is for the dinner. At 6 p.m. will be the candidate forum. And you can register for this event at our website at ohioca.org, or just search Ohio Christian Alliance. And right at the top of the page, you'll see all the information for the Freedom Banquet. Our keynote speaker is going to be Bill Fetter of the American Minute. He's going to be talking about the history of socialism from Plato to the present. Bill is a a really good speaker, and you're going to love the presentation that he gives. Uh, With that, the candidate forum starting at 6 o'clock will be the U.S. Senate candidate forum and the 13th Congressional District candidate forum. We have confirmed uh, Bernie Marino. Uh, Frank LaRose, and we have extended invitation to Mr. Dolan. We're waiting to hear back from his campaign. Uh, Our office did receive a call back today. We're going to see if he's able to confirm to be with us for this U.S. Senate candidate forum. This is the Republican side of the ticket, challenging Sherrod Brown in November. The 13th Congressional District on the Republican side will be former State Senator Kevin Coughlin and uh, Councilman Chris Banwig from Hudson are heading off in a primary in the 13th Congressional District. That candidate forum will start at 6 p.m. The reception is at 5.30. You can register for the event. It's only $75 for the dinner uh, and for the program, and then there's tables of 10 that you can get as well, and sponsorships all are available, and that's all on our website at ohioca.org. It's going to be a great evening, and we hope that you can come out. Uh, when you come to a Freedom Banquet, you always leave encouraged about this American Republic and rejuvenated as to get back out there and to continue in the fight for freedom. And again, that's the Ohio Christian Alliance Freedom Banquet on Thursday, uh, February 22nd at the Akron Fairlawn Hilton. Well, last week we started an uh, interview uh, with Jack Boyle, our good friend, to talk, take us through the history of home lending mortgages and uh, where we are today in the housing market. And basically, the American dream is slipping away, and Jack's kind of stepping us through from the history of uh, mortgage lending and uh, through FHA and VA, and then, of course, uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And then, of course, uh, we're going to pick it up where we left off last week with subprime lending. And he's kind of taken us through the turn of the 19th century, uh, through the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. We talked about what the housing prices were at that time. And, of course, we're going to get to a lot of material today as, as to where it is today. And a lot of homes are not being built in Ohio. In fact, we have a housing crisis. And I just went to a select committee in the Ohio Senate uh, chaired by Michelle Reynolds, who is herself is a real estate agent. Uh, Senator uh, Andy Brenner will be back on this program. He's a realtor. And the select committee is getting findings as to uh, what's actually going on out there with inflationary rates. Uh, builders can't uh, 
uh, build because of inflationary rates. And when they can, it's very expensive. Uh, bankers aren't lending at that uh, amount. And the middle class is just disappearing. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to have an upcoming forum that we're going to feature Jack and actually Greg Lawson, the Buckeye Institute, to talk about the taxes that are levied against our homes. And we're going to have that in the Wadsworth area in early March. So you want to stay tuned to that as well. Well, without further ado, let's go to our guest today and back with us to talk about mortgage lending and the the, uh, dr- the American dream b- basically getting a home and is becoming out of reach for these younger kids. And we want to uh, address this issue and to see if there's any solutions. Our, our good friend, Jack Boyle. Jack, welcome back. Well, thank you, Chris. It's my pleasure to be uh, with you today. Well, we left off. It's We were just about to address subprime lending, so let's pick it up right from there. Well, sounds good. Again, in, in our last program, we had talked about the development of the mortgage markets, and by by the 70s, uh, they had gotten to be pretty efficient. Uh, it was possible for uh, working people to buy houses uh, with reasonable down payments and, uh, uh, and payments that they could pay off over 30 years to correct some of the problems that had been earlier, you know, in the, in the uh, century. Um, but there, but uh, there began to be perceived a problem that um, the, the system was not responding to all Americans, and, in, in, and specifically uh, that lower-income people and racial minorities and other people you know, were not being served in the, in the ways that you know, an awful lot of Americans were. And, so, and, and there are those, and I might be considered one of them, that part of the problem was the government. The way they structured the programs was, was in fact, not uh, even-handed, but that's another program. Um, by 1977, there was a lot of the, you know, we had, had the Civil Rights Movement. There had been a lot of uh, hue and cry, and the Congress passed a law called the Community Reinvestment Act. And the Community Reinvestment Act was designed to combat what they called redlining, which was uh, uh, this idea that the lenders would have a map of the community with a red line around bad neighborhoods that they would not lend in. And, uh, you know, the, the CRA has been around and is still around today and has had all kinds of, uh, you know, problems with it, in my opinion, the, not the least of which is they sort of left the answers to the regulators. They didn't say, don't discriminate. They said, you need to work with regulators to be sure you're serving your community. And what that meant often was rather than making loans to you know, people with lower incomes, although maybe you tried to do that, it meant giving grants to community groups who were politically motivated to do this and do that and do the next thing. In any case, DRA started in 1977. Um, by the 1990s, when the Clinton administration came in, um, it occurred to someone that it would be possible under CRA to mandate that the uh, the government lending agencies, uh, specifically Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, would would be required to do a certain port or percentage of their business in what was called affordable lending. They had affordable lending targets, and it may have started earlier, but to my recollection, it was in, it was in the 90s, and it started with like two percent of their um, uh, lending. Now, the it, it suddenly occurred to anybody, there to people, and especially to politicians, that hey, uh, we can we can buy votes 
with other people's money. Uh, you know, we'll just let's if two percent is good, five percent is better, and if five percent is good, ten percent is better. And frankly, by the mid two uh, thousands under the Bush administration, the affordable lending requirements got to be over fifty percent. So when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac wanted to make a, a loan or purchase a loan, um, half of their more than half of their loans had to be in affordable lending category. And the problem was there weren't enough people in the affordable lending categories to satisfy all of the lending demand in the non-affordable lending categories. And so the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had, you know, had a problem and how to meet it. Well, in the meantime, kind of on a different track, subprime lending developed. And what subprime lending did uh, was make lending available to people essentially with poor credit history and other issues, but, you know, essentially poor credit history. And, you know, another development, and we've all kind of heard of our credit score, credit scores got developed right around the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s, and, um, you know, have, have developed over the years where they are a, a, a quite good predictor of the behavior uh, in bulk, not necessarily individual by individual, of borrowers, okay, with, you know, in the certain credit score range. And so um, as the, the the basic mortgage market, the con- what they call the conventional mortgage market developed, there was a lot of demand on the part of investors for the, the mortgage-backed securities. They became very good investments, and, and um, you know, the, there was demand for more and more and more. Um, and so th- there developed what was called an asset-backed lending uh, market that was backed by things other than conventional mortgage loans, including subprime loans. And uh, the, the thing about the subprime loans is that, you know, in there, the borrowers that were in these loan pools very much fit into the category that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had the mandate to buy in their affordable housing goals. The problem was their charters prohibited them from buying subprime loans. They weren't allowed to buy charter, but they were allowed to buy AAA-rated securities. Now, uh, there are those who will argue that, uh, that at least Fannie Mae ignored the charter requirements, bought the subprime loans anyway, and again, that's maybe another uh, uh, you know program. But what began to happen was... Uh, you know, lenders that the Wall Street houses saw a big opportunity here. They would get these subprime loans, um, put them in a pool, and then they would do what was called stripping the security, where they would take, you know, a $10 million security and they would form, uh, you know, half a dozen securities backed by that one $10 million pool. And they would say, this first, uh, you know, a million and a half dollars. We'll get all the payments first out of all ten million dollars worth of loans, and then the triple the rating agencies will say, "Well, that's AAA rated," and so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac could buy that security, even though it was backed by loans that were subprime that they were not allowed to buy. Okay, and so there began there 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 was created almost a game where um, these subprime pools uh, would be created 
they would be stripped. Um, and and this was a horribly cynical situation. You know, you know, say there's a a pool of a thousand loans to subprime, you know, borrowers. Um, you know, XYZ Bank would create the loan, or or you know, the Wall Street House would create the loan uh, security. Then, you know, they would sell it to, you know, this house to you know that was going to set up, you know, stripping the loan. Well, the first group got to count it as a thousand loans. The second group got to count it as a thousand, thousand loans. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who only bought ten percent of it or fifteen percent of it in the strip, but it was part of the thousand loans. They each got to count it as a thousand loans, and so people were going around. Politicians would, you know, we made twenty-five thousand loans. Well, no, it was the same thousand loans that got repackaged and resold twenty-five times. And I mean, there was this just frenzy for um, creating the subprime loans, okay, because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac needed them because the regular housing market was so so active and so hot. Um, and, that, uh, and that was also compounded by, um, you know, the, the, the Wall Street houses started selling these not just to domestic buyers, insurance companies, and that kind of thing, but they, there was a big push to sell these securities in Europe, and you know, the, and the idea was there is no safer asset than the U.S. housing market. But the trouble was they were selling these loans that you know that were bad loans, okay? Uh, and by definition, they were bad loans. And you know, okay, when they stripped the loan, the first you know the first triple A piece was you know presumably good. But, you know, the bottom half wasn't good. But and then to, you know, create some more, they would take the bottom half, they'd, cre- they'd strip it and create a new security where this tranche of the bottom half got the payments, the first payments out of that, and they'd create another AAA security. It just compounded and compounded and compounded. And the houses, the Wall Street houses, were making boatloads of money the demand for these securities in Europe and everywhere was was uh, great. And then there was another thing, and I don't know if you remember, but um, there was uh, something called credit default swaps, collateralized debt obligations, where you could you could buy insurance when you bought one of these things. You could buy insurance that there would not, you know, if there was a default, the insurance would pay for it. And the these things were incredibly uh, these credit fault swaps were very lucrative to the Wall Street houses. And the weird thing was, you didn't have to own the thing that was being insured. You could just buy one as an investment. And it's kind of akin to, you know, if every person on the street could buy a fire insurance policy on your house, okay? So if your house burned down, everybody got paid, even though they didn't own your house, okay? Well, all of that led to the financial crisis in 2008. And essentially, again, this is a complicated thing. There was a mark-to-market policy that had been set up by the Securities and Exchange Commission that covered a whole lot of things, including these um, uh, subprime loan securities. And when you know, when, you know, the market finally for these things, everybody realized, 
this is just air. There's nothing there. The market for these things dropped precipitously, and you couldn't, there was no value to them. You couldn't sell them. And essentially, every financial institution chartered in the United States was technically insolvent because of this, okay? That was the crisis in 2008. I don't know if you remember the TARP, the troubled asset. Relief oh, I, I remember. In fact, that, and all that, well, I remember yeah. it well, Jack, because it was an election year, and John McCain right. called for the bailout. This is where uh, there was people just screaming about the thing about the bailout and saying, "What what's going on here? And uh, everybody seemed to get bailed out. Lehman Brothers did not. They were left out. Uh, we knew. We remembered all that. That was the crash. It was. Um, I was actually uh, the Ohio Christian Alliance was uh, had an office in Medina, and just down the hall from us was this uh, big uh, builder that was building homes. Uh, a company that built both commercial and. Uh, residential properties, and I'll tell you, you could hear a pin drop in that building. It just sounded like a morgue. Uh, but you know, everybody was really quiet. Yep. That that's for yep. uh, a number of weeks after the crash, and I remember it well. I was like, I got a front seat view of it, right, as I'm running the operation for the Ohio Christian Alliance. It was really something. So take us through now out of the crash. What? How did the housing market reemerge, uh, and then how did you know to where we are today? Well. Essentially, what happened, and, and I mean, and the weird thing was, you know, these affordable housing um, goals, just because things crashed, they didn't go away. Even after the crash, they still had affordable housing goals, you know, in the 50% range. Um, in part, at least initially, you know, in my understanding, I wasn't inside or anything like that. Fannie uh, Mae and Freddie Mac ignored them for a while. I mean, they, they had no other choice, but they got away with it because in, in the crash, the government uh, essentially nationalized Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They took them into what was called conservatorship, and so it was just the government doing whatever they wanted to do. Yes. And, uh, and, you know, that's, and, and frankly, they are still in conservatorship today, okay? Uh, and the affordable housing goals are still around today. Um, and, of course, in this day and age, uh, the, the definition of affordable housing goals, you know, back then, prior to the crash, were basically based on percentages of income. You know, borrowers that had 60 percent of the median income or lower, 80 percent of the median income. Nowadays, as you can imagine, there are all kinds of other criteria that are used about, uh, you know, all the different um Protected classes, let's just say, that the government is interested in, okay? Um, but, but again, the government just kind of, you know, they, they run their own ship, they make their own rules. Now, part of, you know, the, the economy righted itself, and actually they did it in part because they took the $700 billion, what it was supposed to do, they were supposed to be buying the troubled assets out. They actually didn't. Instead, they put capital into the big banks and the big lenders that they wanted to save, and which completely violated what the provisions of TARP was, but that stabilized the market. They got rid of the mark-to-market uh, rule, and it, you, you began to be able to have, um, you know, financial statements that balanced again. Okay, we, you know, the, the economy kind of came back, and 
you know, you you move forward to, um, you know, to now uh, in in an issue which is this is all of a kind. Uh, you know, as we as we came through COVID, we shut the economy down, and then we we just essentially printed all this money to pay people who couldn't work because the economy was shut down, and then we kept paying them. You know, a lot of them who, whatever reason, um, well, a lot of individuals, you know, got two or three thousand dollars or whatever, and they, you know, they didn't work or they did work or they did whatever. But a lot of that money got into financial institutions, and there was, you know, nothing to do with it. You know, the economy wasn't doing very well, the supply chain and whatever. And so some of the big Wall Street houses, and this started actually earlier, but it became, uh, uh, very prominent now, began forming pools that were ba- of single-family homes, and they began buying up single-family homes. And uh, in fact, uh, and in fact, I just I found one article. Just uh, this is from CNBC last February. Uh, Wall Street has purchased hundreds of thousands of single-family homes since the Great Recession. Here's what that means for rental prices. And it's, uh, uh, well, let's see, just uh, the uh, MetLife Investment Management, which is, you know, a consulting group or whatever, estimates that institutional investors may control 40% of the single-family homes in the United States by 2030. Um, I just saw a, a news feed thing last week that in Duluth, Minnesota, some billionaire that's based in Duluth is simply buying up all the houses in Duluth, Minnesota. So I don't know what you're supposed to do if you're a, you know, you live in Duluth, Minnesota, you want to buy a house. Well, um, this this is so- the Potter syndrome, okay, of, of It's a Wonderful Life, the savings and loan with George Bailey and uh, he and his dad, they were helping just everyday working people to get a home. And um, the Potter was the one that was buying up the property and renting out these uh, slums. Uh, so BlackRock's doing the same thing, Jack, today. They're bu- they're buying up all kinds of real estate, residential real estate. And then they're, they're what they're doing is not reselling it to buyers. What they're doing is renting it out so people become renters. They don't become homeowners. They don't possess the American dream. And so we're going to be dealing with this, folks, and we're going to address this. The Select House Committee in Columbus is taking its findings. The final committee is tomorrow, and then they're going to look at their findings of the five sessions that they've had. Uh, Builders and bankers and NGOs and individuals have come in and interested parties to testify, and they're going to take those findings, and they're going to try to work out some solutions. Jack, the governor announced last year to state of the state that there was a housing crisis in Ohio and that it wasn't affordable for uh, these new families getting started. The state treasurer is going to come on this program. He's going to talk about a program of a savings account to build for a down payment. Uh, FHA was basically a 3% uh, down payment. Down payments are much more now. I mean, young young people have to amass $20,000 or more for a down payment for even a hope of uh, getting a, a mortgage uh, so that they could buy a reasonably highest house. We have a few minutes left. Your thoughts? Well, I, that's exactly true. Now, FHA is still 3%, okay? Um, VA loans are still zero down. The problem now has gotten to be 
finding a home. Yes. Um, and, and FHA and VA, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac all have upper limits on the price of homes, although, I, and I'm not up to date on Fannie or on the FHA and VA, Fannie and Freddie, uh, when I was in the business 20 years ago, the the uh, the limit price was about 200000 I understand it's like over 800000 or close to 800000 now. Um, but um, you need to be able to find a house, and when you're competing with a, you know, a hundred billion dollar investment fund for that house, uh, as, you know, as a, a home buyer, um, you know, as a, especially a, even not a first time home buyer, just as a normal middle class person who's got that's right. Down payment, it, it, but, that you're, uh, you're you're up against it. Well, listen, Jack. Right. Thank you for this. This has been fantastic. We've run out of time. We're going to have you on the forum, uh, Jack Boyle. Thank you so much. This has been great. Folks, if you uh, didn't hear the full interview, you can hear the second part as well. And it's on our website at ohioca.org. And listen uh, closely because in the next week we're going to announce a forum with Jack Boyle with Greg Lawson the Buckeye Institute to talk about how the American dream is slipping away and what we can do about it. Uh, thank you for listening. God bless you all. This is Chris Long, host of News and Focus, announcing my new book, For Their Honor how the D-Day prayer was added to the World War II Memorial. This book tells the 11-year story of how one of the largest mass prayers in history was added to the World War II Memorial. The D-Day prayer was one of FDR's fireside chats, but it stands alone as an incredible moment in American history. The date was June 6, 1944. Operation Overlord, the D-Day invasion of Western France, was already underway by the Allied nations. News reports throughout the day were released from General Eisenhower's headquarters with short statements but with few details on what was happening with the landings and on the beaches of France. The American public anxiously awaited throughout the day to hear from President Roosevelt for more details on the historic invasion. What they heard that evening was a president inviting them to join him in prayer. This book will inspire and encourage your faith. You can order yours today at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. America is kept safe because the Army National Guard responds, protects, and supports our nation when it needs them most. From fighting wildfires with air support, helping civilians in flooded neighborhoods, to delivering food and supplies to those who have lost everything, the Army National Guard always responds when disaster strikes. The Army National Guard also trains to be ever vigilant against threats, foreign and domestic. They protect our skies with missile defense weaponry. They secure our information, communications and infrastructure with cybersecurity. And they protect us against chemical, biological and radiological hazards with the civilian support team. The Army National Guard also stands ready to deploy and provide support for conflicts or humanitarian missions abroad. Join the Army National Guard and be there to respond, protect, and support your community and your country. Visit NationalGuard.com to learn more about part-time service. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. The following is a previously aired broadcast. Okay, and we're back. And we want to tell you about the Ohio Christian Alliance Freedom Banquet coming February the 22nd at the Akron Fairlawn Hilton. Well, this is going to be a big night. We're going to have a candidate forum of the U.S. Senate and then also of the 13th Congressional District. Uh, and that candidate forum will begin at 6 p.m. Uh, you want to get there at 5.30 for a meet and greet, and then 6 p.m. is the candidate forum begins. But the din dinner program is at 7 p.m. 
You can register for this exciting event at our website at ohioca.org. Tickets are just $75 each, or table of 10 is $700. There's also opportunity for program sponsorships are available at our website, and you can also call the Ohio Christian Alliance office at 330-887-1922. Well, we're going to have Bernie Marino and Frank LaRose. We've extended an invitation to Matt Dolan to join us for the candidate form of the U.S. Senate race. Uh, the primary, of course, as we er- mentioned earlier, is March 19th, and also the 13th congressional uh, primary. Kevin Coughlin, former state senator, and Chris Banwig, a veteran and a councilman from the city of Stowe, is also facing off in that primary on the Republican side, and that's going to comprise the candidate forum that night. And then our keynote speaker is none other than Bill Fetter of the American Minute. He's going to be talking about socialism, the real history from Plato to the present. And, uh, of course, I'll be there, and I'll be signing copies of our new book that you just heard about, uh, For Their Honor, How the D-Day Prayer Was Added to the World War II Memorial. It's going to be a great night, a great dinner. You'll have to register at our website at ohioca.org. What we want to talk about this side of the program is about the housing crisis that we have right now. And when we say that is because young people are trying to buy homes and they're finding it great, great difficulty doing that. So the American dream is slipping away. And we're going to hold a forum in uh, March uh, after our Freedom Banquet and we're going to do it with a gentleman that's uh, holding on the line here, and I'm going to give him a proper introduction here in a minute. And we're going to talk about the history of mortgages, the subprime lending, and the current housing market. Uh, we're going to talk about what's actually happening to the ability of Americans to buy homes uh, and it to be economically possible. So we're going to discuss that here, and I want to introduce my guest. His name is Jack Boyle. He's actually an advisor of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Uh, Jack was born in Cleveland in 1949. He went to college and under, uh, received his undergraduate study at Boston College and graduated in 1967. He's worked in the banking industry for many years. He, he understands how home mortgages and mortgage finance. Uh, he had 35 years of a long career with it. And he and I have been discussing the last... Uh, five days about this topic because it popped into my mind. I've been talking to some younger people about what's happening with the housing market and their concern about not being able to actually buy a home and thinking that I may never be able to buy my own home. You know, and so it's the same kind of argument we saw in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where the savings and loan, where George Bailey was helping people to buy their own homes when Potter was trying to just, uh, uh, put them in his rented shacks, uh, you know, and so George and uh, his dad were trying to make it sure that the working people could actually buy a home. Well, that is slipping away from us in the current uh, economic climate with inflation skyrocketing, building costs skyrocketing. In fact, ever so much so that the Ohio Senate has a select committee on housing. Uh, you know, I've been doing public policy for 20 years, and I thought, wait a second, I got an alert uh, from Columbus about the housing committee is meeting this week. I'm like, wait, housing committee? I never heard of that. Well, here to find out, the Senate has a select committee on housing because it has become a crisis in the state of Ohio. Uh, a lot of people are waiting for homes. Uh, builders are not building homes, and uh, the banks aren't lending as easily as they were, and so it's a big problem. We're going to 
uh, tackle some of that in this program. And then again, I want to tell you about a forum. You want to stay tuned because we'll be announcing a forum in Northeast Ohio that you might want to attend. Jack Boyle will be presenting along with State Senator Andy Brenner, who himself is a real estate agent. Uh, Andy's been in insurance and real estate for years, and he is also on the committee, the housing committee. And last week, I'm told, at the Cleveland Foundation, they had a nine and a half hour meeting of experts and uh, individuals that came in to testify before the committee addressing uh, what are some of the problems with the high housing crisis currently. Well, w- welcome with me, my good friend, Jack Boyle. Jack, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Chris, very much. Thank you very much. I uh, always enjoy speaking with you, and I'm very, very interested in uh, uh, this topic, which I spent most of my career working in. So, Well, that's right. And, you know, you and I have talked about uh, financial issues. Uh, you know, that's not my strong point. Uh, so I'll, I'll go to advisors and people that know more than I do, and I like our conversations that we have. And I start asking questions about the housing market and basically the history of the uh, mortgage, uh, uh, you know, uh, market and how that all started, uh, you know, in in the last number of decades, how people were able to acquire homes. Uh, you know, I had my parents went through the Great Depression. Um, and, you know, lots of difficulty there and coming out of it in the war years. And then when uh, the soldiers were returning from World War II, there was a large housing boom because here comes these men. They're coming home to make families, and there wasn't a lot of homes for them. And so that's when a lot of homes were built at that time. And uh, if you look at greater Detroit and Cleveland and the the neighborhoods up there, and, of course, in Akron, um, there there was an initiative for home building. And, of course, that was decades ago, but uh, the housing mortgage um, industry has gone through quite a metamorphosis over the years. And, in fact, sometimes my wife and I will take a little drive around and we'll see some of these monstrosity of houses. And I'm like, what in the world's going on here? And then we realized, oh, it was the banking industry lent more money to people. So, well, you're entitled to this much. And it was in collusion almost with builders who said, we'd like to build bigger homes and we could all make money. The banks will make money. The builders will make money. And then, uh, you know, people would think, wow, we could have a really grand home. I look at some of the homes that they built over the last 15 years, 20 years. These were what we would consider mansions on Merriman Drive in Akron and other places back in the past. And now that's commonplace. It was. Uh, when there was this housing boom and then people were told that they could borrow this much money and the banks were willing to do it again, they were making money on it. The builders were making money and uh, people were buying these monstrosity of homes. Uh, you could only live in a few rooms, actually, to be honest with you, but, uh, you know, six bedrooms and five baths and it's like, what in the world? You know, it's like my wife and I raised eight children. I don't even want to tell you how many baths we had and how we did it. But, the, you know, of course, they all went out there, and they're doing quite well as adults, and they don't need any help from us, thank the Lord. Uh, they're all very hard workers. But, um, you know, it's just it just sometimes seemed a little much. I mean, I'm always grand for people to do well and all that, but and I actually was a painting contractor way back in the day when I was do, starting out in ministry. And uh, so I worked in some of these people's homes. And, you know, it's funny. We were doing remodeling, and it's like, there was only a couple of people that were living in the home. And it's just like, wow, it seemed like a waste of space, but, you know, what, whatever, uh, to each his own, I guess. 
But all that to say, Jack, take us through going back to the 1940s, maybe, where this all started. What was the standardized process of an individual or a couple getting a home back then? Meaning, how much did they need for a down payment, and what was the process about applying for a loan? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to go back even a little bit further. And uh, when, uh, uh, you know, at, at the, the early part of the, of the 20th century, um, you know, the housing market was not what we are familiar with, whether it's the mini mansions or the, the uh, Cape Cod homes that were built after World War II or the, you know, everything in between. And uh, mortgage financing was, was very um, uh, non-standard, let's put it that way. It kind of depended on where you lived and what the financial institution was like. If you were fortunate enough to have uh, a company run by people like George Bailey, uh, who were committed to their communities, and, and uh, you know, you, you found a, a lender who, you know, had the skill and the resources and the smarts to, you know, to help people. Uh, on the other hand, there were, um, you know, lenders that weren't interested in that. They were interested in making loans to farmers or making loans to businesses or making loans to, and they really didn't do it. So you had, you know, Typically, you had to put fifty uh, percent down uh, or, or more, and uh, be the banker's brother-in-law to get the loan. And then uh, um, the loans were not loans like we recognize them. You know, a thirty-year loan where you pay principal and interest. Uh, generally, they were interest only, and they were balloon loans. At the end of three years, you had to pay them off, and uh, you know you would have to refinance them. You would have to, you know, do whatever. Now, houses were a lot less expensive then. So, you know, it, it's sort of like once upon a time, you could pay your way through college too. You, you know, not really anymore. Same thing with the housing market. But um, when the depression hit, you know, we had a general banking collapse in the country and the um, the, the banking regulators, the powers to be, and again, which were not as organized basically required banks to call all their loans in. And so you had a mortgage, you suddenly were getting foreclosed on, okay? The trouble was there was nobody to buy the loan uh, or nobody to buy the home. You know, everyone was in the same boat. And so uh, in 1934, the uh, as part of the, you know, Roosevelt... And of course, uh, that plays out, by the way, in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? When there's a run yeah, on the bank. The state and loan. It actually tells this story. Absolutely. Right. Right. But in 1934, the, the Congress uh, created the Federal Housing Administration. And what the Federal Housing Administration did was basically guarantee that the bank would get paid if the borrower couldn't make the payment. Okay. That was essentially the, the old FHA loans, the first loans. And so lenders were able, again, to, you know, to make make loans. Now, these were still not the loans that we would recognize now, um, but uh, that sort of got the market going again. The, the problem was... The so so an example, in the 1960s, I saw one figure where the average home was around $3,500. Is that correct? That seems a little low for 1960, but, uh, you know, I I wouldn't say no. I mean, I bought my first house for... For fifteen thousand dollars, I have to think about when that was. It was, and that was actually probably in the early seventies. So maybe, it, maybe it is right. You know, now that I think about it, 
Um, but um, in any case, in uh, I think it was 1936, they formed uh, Ginny or uh, Fannie Mae, which is the Federal National Mortgage Association. And Fannie Mae's job was to create what's called a secondary market for the mortgages. So if you would go to your local savings loan, uh, who didn't really, you know, who had enough money to make a few loans, but not a whole lot of them, you know, they would be able to sell their loans to Fannie Mae uh, and get, you know, the, and normally back then it was a participation. They would sell 90% of the loan to Fannie Mae retain 10% the bank would, but they'd get the 90% back to go and make another loan, okay? And that was the very rudimentary start of what was called the secondary market. Now, we got through the Depression, no thanks to the federal government or the Federal Reserve, who really caused it, in my opinion, but that's a different show, okay? So, um, and, uh, you know, we got into the war, everything was involved in World War II, you know, in the war effort. Again, as you say, when... Uh, when the war was over and the soldiers came home, all of a sudden there was this huge, you know, explosion of family formation and the housing stock wasn't there. And they created uh, what was called the VA loan, the GA, GI Bill of Rights. And that was uh, you could get a loan with a, a veteran with one dollar down and uh, the interest rate was was pegged. It was set by the. Uh, uh, I probably by the FHA. Now that I think about it, I have to go back by yeah by the FHA, and um, that loan would be a thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage. Where you know you if you paid your payment for thirty years, at the end of thirty years, you know the loan was paid off, and you know there was no balloon mortgages. The interest rate couldn't change. You know everything, and even one of the best things is those of us who got into the mortgage market. Those loans were assumable, which meant if uh, you know you bought the house, you lived there for 10 years, then you were, you know, moving somewhere else or getting a bigger home, someone could buy your house and take over the payment. And, uh, you know, the, nothing changed. It was all very smooth and easy. Um, during, um, you know, that period of time, the uh, th there were really two kinds of, of mortgage lenders. Um, one were the savings and loans, which operated much like you know, the it's a wonderful life model that you see. Uh, the other were banks and, and mortgage bankers. The mortgage bankers were companies that, and there's still, you know, there's still lots of mortgage bankers around today where they would make the loan, but then they would sell it. And uh, sometimes you would continue to pay them. Sometimes they'd sell the servicing. So you, you made a loan to, or you got a loan from ABC Mortgage. You closed on the house, then a month later you got a loan saying, you know, starting the beginning of next month, make your payment to this other bank, you know, which that was very normal. And people, people did that. And, uh, uh, and frankly, that was a big part of creating what we sometimes refer to as the American dream, you know, the housing boom and the economic boom from the fifties and sixties, a lot of it was fueled by, you know, people forming uh, families, Buying houses, buying the, you know, the furniture and the appliances, and you know all of those kinds of things. And one of the um, uh, benefits out of this was that mortgage lending was standardized. 
And what that means is that if you went to buy a house in Akron or in Pensacola, Florida, or Butte, Montana, or Boston, Massachusetts, the rules were the same. The the down payment was the same, the way they considered your income was the same, the way they considered your credit was the same, which had never been the case before. Before, it was always the banker, well, I, you know, I didn't have uh, very much luck with the people from the other side of the track where you live. I'm not too good about, you know, making you a loan, okay? And there's, I mean, there, there's all kinds of permutations of what that was about. But the the mortgage lending, you know, in the 50s and 60s with the, with the VA and FHA loans and then the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans standardized the industry so that, you know, again, you you knew um, pretty much based on your income and your, your credits and your, you know, your assets and that kind of thing, how much you could afford to pay. And builders knew it. Realtors knew it. Everybody, you know, the market was, you know, was very efficient. And the, again, the problem was getting the money. Uh, you know, the savings and loan industry had basically operated using their depositors' money. But as you saw, you know, in the movie, that was not a very efficient way to do it. And uh, um, so something called the secondary market developed. And what the secondary market did was, again, as I say, the local lender would make the loan, but then in, in some way or other, they would, you know, sell the loan uh, to Fannie Mae and then a second uh, agency, Fannie Mae was the Federal Association, which basically dealt with banks and mortgage bankers. And in 1959, the savings and loan industry created Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, to deal with savings and loans mortgage lending so that they could access the secondary market and not be just dependent upon their own depositors' funds. And again, that became very a very efficient way of um, you know of, of raising money and, and providing housing for you know families and family growth and the building of communities and uh, uh, you know it kind of it, it worked really well until all of a sudden it didn't work really well anymore and uh, um, you know and again you know my take on that is. Uh, you know, the government's really great and does a really great job until they overdo it and then they, they ruin it. And, you know, I think you can look, you can go back and look at, you know, developments in um, um, in the mortgage business as a very good example of that. And one of the one of the symptoms of that as we got into the 90s um, was the development of what was called subprime lending. All right, before you head there, I want to just go over a couple points. I want to correct myself that the um, housing cost in 1940 was about $3,000. In 1960, it was about $11,900, okay? But today, and again, these are January 10, 2024, average housing price, $363,000 according to inflation-adjusted terms. So that's the DQYDJ. What does that represent? Uh, medium price of existing home. DQYDJ. This is quoted in the um, uh, real estate uh, publication. But you know, I have to think of what that acronym means, but essentially it's the median house you know, price of a, um, uh, of, you know, if you take all the houses and, you know, that 300 and whatever is, the middle one. 
So, so half of the price, that's, you know, half the sales were below that, half the sales were above it. That's right. Um, so we're talking with Jack Boyle. We're talking about housing mortgages, the history of it, subprime lending. We're about to get into that. We're running out of time here a little bit, Jack. I'm going to have to back, have you back on, but of course, all this will be at the forum that we're going to present. You'll be presenting. Also, Senator Andy Brenner will be giving us an update from the Housing Committee, which, by the way, meets again tomorrow at the Ohio Senate after session. Uh, session is scheduled for 1.30, so look around uh, 2.30, 3 o'clock, and it may be available online. We may have that link on our website at ohioca.org. People might want to listen in on that. that because this has become a real problem, because what you've got is you've got Intel coming in, a large corporation in central Ohio that's going to be doing the chip industry, and lots of related industry building around that, big get for Ohio. But there's no place to house these people, Jack. Uh, right now, you can't buy a home in Columbus or the greater area, and if you can't, it's, it's an astronomical price. Builders aren't building. That's why the Ohio Senate is having this select committee but the problem is statewide. It's actually nationwide. As you're indicating, the industry currently is broken. The printing of money in Washington, and I'd like you to touch on that because we'll have to get to the subprime lending next time. But tell us about the inflationary dollars and how that's really just crippling the whole process. Well, that's exactly the pr problem, and that is a problem uh, right now. And, uh, you know, it's been exacerbated as out of the government activity in COVID. But it's a problem, and it really has been a problem since 1971 when the, the uh, Nixon administration cut the last tenuous cord of the dollar to the gold standard. And, and again, that's a whole different story. But just right now, uh, kind of what we're dealing with is, we, you know, we all know COVID hit. They shut everything down. So then they gave people money, uh, you know, to stay home because they couldn't work. Well. Uh, they they printed just in no, trillions of dollars of money. We went from 17 trillion in deficit in like 2016 to 34 trillion now. Okay, and the individuals who got the money, you know, some of them saved it, some of them went on vacation. You know, a lot of them stayed home and uh, played video games and bought pot. Okay, but the businesses also got the money, and there was literally nothing to invest in. And many large Wall Street firms created funds and started buying up homes. And the the you know the supply of homes that should be out and around, there are literally tens of thousands of homes that are owned in these big funds. That you, you know I can't compete with trying to with uh, BlackRock and trying to you know bid on that house, and neither can you. No, and certainly the first-time home buyer can't either. So, well, th this has to be addressed. Uh, the Ohio I'm glad to hear that they have select committees at the Ohio State House. We're going to be on this, Jack. We're going to have you at this forum. I'm I'm looking forward to it. We've only just touched upon it. We've run out of time today. Um, but listen, folks, we're going to be tracking this thing because young people are concerned as they ought to be. And they can't buy a home, and that's not right. The American dream is slipping away, and we're going to have to get to the bottom of this. Jack, thanks for being my guest today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
If you missed any of today's program, you can hear it in its entirety at a website at ohioca.org. You have been listening to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. To learn more about the issues that matter most to you and your family, visit online at ohioca.org. That's ohioca.org. Thank you for listening. This program is brought to you by the Ohio Christian Alliance.